Habits and Health, Episode 92. Welcome to the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. Brought to you by an educator and coach for anyone who wants to create a healthier life. Here's your host, Tony Winyard. Welcome back to another edition of Habits and Health. My guest today, Dr. Jay Wiles, who is an international speaker, scientist, clinician, influencer, and subject matter expert and authority on the connection between human stress response and health performance and optimization. He's well known in the world of HRV, which is heart rate variability, and we discuss what that is, performance psychology, and many other areas in today's episode. He's also the founder and chief scientific officer of Hanu Health. So we find out what is Hanu Health, what they are doing for heart rate variability, and talk about fitness wearables and that whole sort of technology aspect as well. So that's this week's episode. Hope you enjoy it. Please do share the episode with anyone who's really wanting to know more about what is HRV. Habits and Health, my guest today is Dr. Jay Wiles. How are you, Jay? I'm doing well, Tony. Thanks for having me, man. And we're, you were saying you're, we're in North Carolina today. South Carolina, yeah, South yeah. Carolina. So just a little bit further south, the, the neighbor to North Carolina, the probably a little bit more enhanced Southern culture, like we, as we like to say, North Carolina, they've lost their ways. They've lost their Southern culture. We still have it here in South Carolina. <laughs> And are you a native from there? I am. I didn't live here for probably close to 10 years. We lived up in like Northern Virginia for a while, simply because I was there for schooling and residency fellowship. And then we moved back actually when I, when we had our first kid, because family was here for my wife and I, and it just made sense to have that built in babysitter. And we just, we're a very relational communal family. We love being together and I, it was just the right time. And so for me, it was a great call to move back. And now we have two boys who love being near their grandparents we were speaking before we started recording and you mentioned you're a football fan of like english football that's right yes yes there's not as many of us here in america however i will say that i've seen it massively growing so the mls or the major league soccer league that we do have it used to be like basically nobody watched it like it was everybody came here to retire and it's still the same way you get a lot of like top level guys who played in the epl or in the spanish league or in the italian league and they would come and finish their career in the MLS. That still happens, but we've seen a heightened, I don't know, it's almost just like heightened interest in soccer and here in the US, which is really fun. And so I'm not too far from Atlanta and Atlanta United has a ginormous fan following for their MLS team. Had a few rough years, but it's been fun. But yeah, I keep very much in, I would say in the know when it comes to the EPL, which is, yeah, it's a fun thing to follow here. Cool. I mean, you're known as a bit of a sort of like, world expert on HIV. You're pretty knowledgeable on HIV, aren't you? It was something that I just fell into almost because like I just pursued my interest and my passion and it just happened. Like I didn't set off like with the initial goal of I want to specialize in psychophysiology and be a kind of a well-recognized expert or subject matter expert in heart rate variability and biometrics. It just didn't start off that way. I'm a psychologist by trade. So my doctoral degree is in clinical psychology. I'm licensed as a clinical psychologist, but I just had a fascination with the interlap between 
between kind of physical health and mental health and how we can utilize signs from our physiology to better understand what's happening neurologically and then vice versa, because we know it's a bi-directional street. But yeah, I just fell into it. It was just like this crazy set of events. And honestly, to be just completely frank with you, Tony, it just was, I continued searching and studying and practicing something that I found just absolutely fascinating. It was completely like selfish reasons. Like I saw that it was very effective for people, but I was just fascinated with it. And I think that's how a lot of people build businesses. Kind of that's why I built this business is you just get so fascinated and enmeshed with a topic area. You're like, I've got to do more with this, (laughs) which is what happened for me. And so anyone listening who maybe isn't familiar with what is heart rate variability. So why would you say maybe people should pay more attention to it? And what is it? Yeah, the metric is one that is still quite misunderstood. There's a lot of myths around it. And that can be problematic because HRV has become so ubiquitous. It is something that is found in almost every single wearable. It doesn't matter if you get an Aura or a Whoop or Apple Watch or Fitbit, Garmin. They all have some mechanism of tracking heart rate variability and then providing people with that data. And if people do not have a good understanding of what heart rate variability is, it's really confusing. And it is a metric that it's a proxy for stress. And I'll unpack that here in a second. But that number in and of itself, if people don't have a good grasp on it, it can induce a lot of stress in and of itself. And that's because so many people will compare their numbers. And we'll talk about why that's important not to do and why people should avoid comparing their HRV with other people. But the Mm. big concept here is they, they do that. They see somebody post their picture of their aura score with their HRV, and it's at 140 and theirs is at 20. And they think is that am I going to die? Is something like actually going to happen to me here to where I just end up like (laughs) falling over from a heart attack? It's the question that people always provide me, Tony. They say, I've looked at these numbers and I just don't know what, I can't make heads or tails of it. Is this good? Is this bad? And probably the most frequent question that I've gotten via email, whether it's my Hanu email or my prior consulting firm that I ran was like, uh, uh, it was either a question or it was phrased of what do I do about my low HRV or is my HRV low or is this like concerning? So for me, I think one of the biggest components of what I do is I provide some education on dispelling some of the myths around HRV. HRV because what we don't want to have happen is this proxy for nervous system functioning and stress cause people or instill more stress. So Mm. with that, I'll now jump into the definition. So heart rate variability, HRV, there's kind of two ways of defining it. HRV is a set of metrics. So a lot of people think of it as a singular metric, but it's actually a set of metrics. A lot Mm. of the times people are only fed one singular metric, but it's actually a wide array of metrics that we can utilize. And I'll talk more about that. But when we think about variability, of the heart rate, it sounds a little bit odd because we may have think of something like arrhythmia or something that's without rhythm. But what we're actually looking at is we're looking at variance that occurs in between successive heartbeats. And the Mm -hmm. reason being is because at rest, when someone is relaxed, the heart should not act like a metronome. It should not pace itself. And there's a few reasons for that. The reason that, that it's not a good thing is because when we are breathing at a normal rate or when we're breathing at really at any rate, honestly, we should see a fluctuation or variance of the heart rate because as you inhale, your heart rate should speed up. And the reason that should happen 
is because upon inhalation, you're taking in oxygen and now it's time to deliver oxygen. So your heart will want to beat faster in an order to deliver oxygen and nutrients to all of your vital organs and all throughout your body. So as you inhale and oxygen is present, we want to increase the heart rate. There's also structural changes that happen as well. So as you inhale and your lungs expand, the actual concave of your chest causes your heart to tighten and actually become smaller. And so therefore it doesn't have as much room to contract and expand and therefore will beat faster. Mm. So at exhale on the other end, what we see is we see a significant reduction in heart rate. So speed up on inhale and significant reduction on the exhale. That's actually mediated by our 10th cranial nerve, which is called our vagus nerve. And that is a slowing down. And the reason that happens is because now that we have sufficiently delivered oxygen, hopefully, as long as there's no breathing or respiratory related issues, then we should see that we don't want to continue to speed the heart up because there's not as much to deliver there. So we see that really slow down of the heart rate. So we call that a peak to trough difference or peak to trough ratio, which is a low heart rate at the start, high heart rate upon inhalation, and then low heart rate upon exhalation. Now, what happens during that time is that the amount of time between heartbeats is going to change really significantly. It's going to vary. So as you inhale and heart rate increases, we actually see the space between heartbeats or the time between heartbeats are going to shrink. And then as you exhale, they're going to widen up. And that across that cycle, that's a lot of variance. The time is varied significantly. That is natural. That's what's supposed to occur. We call that a phenomenon, respiratory sinus arrhythmia. We all have arrhythmia during every single breath. And it can be confusing because a lot of people, when they think of arrhythmia, which is without rhythm, they think atrial fibrillation or AFib. That's not a great thing that has happened. That is a problem with the electrical conductivity of the heart, which causes significant disarray. And HRV actually for people with AFib can be in the 500, 600, 700 milliseconds because there's so much irregularity. And that's actually could be a cause for stroke and heart attack. That's not a good form of arrhythmia. But the natural form of arrhythmia or respiratory sinus arrhythmia, it occurs during every single breath cycle. So that's naturally what's occurring. But what happens when you're stressed? When you're stressed and heart rate goes up and stays up, the amount of variance that occurs between successive heartbeats is going to go down. So HRV is going to go down. So what is that signaling? That's actually serving as a direct proxy to the changes that are occurring in the moment of the nervous system. In other words, when we see someone stressed or someone's nervous system taxed, we know that the changes across the respiratory cycle of heart rate are going to diminish. They're going to go down. We also know that as kind of blood pressure changes and as the vagus nerve is not being as stimulated, we're going to see HRV begin to decrease. So when you know your baseline numbers of heart rate variability, you know where you normally stand within certain conditions and contexts, and you see a reduction in heart rate variability from that number, what that number is actually representing or telling you is that your nervous system is being taxed by some form of stressors impacting your nervous system. That can be physiological or that can be psychological. So physiologically, if you got up right now and you sprinted hundred meters and then sprinted back hundred meters, heart rate would go up significantly and HRV would go down. What does that mm. mean? 
your body is being significantly taxed during that time. But what if you're sitting down like you and I, Tony, or you're at your desk doing some work and all of a sudden heart rate is way above baseline and HRV is tanking way below baseline. Oh, we may have some psychological stress that's really impacting your sense of well-being and performance. Sorry, I know that was a bit long-winded, but hopefully that encapsulated what you were looking for in terms of the definition of HRV. I think that's a pretty good definition for people to understand. <laughs> you were just talking about stress and the stress response and how HRV helps us to maybe to know when we are more stressed. And stress is really demonized, isn't it? Many people think of stress as a really bad thing. Mm-hmm. So what would you say about that? It's a wonderful point to make. I think that unfortunately, it has indeed become demonized. It has become demonized because people equate stress with the negative effects that stress can have on the body. And that is true. So I don't want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I think what has happened is we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. It Mm. is not the experience of stress, especially the acute experience of stress that causes the mass deleterious effects on the mind and on the body. It is the repeated exposures of stress. If we think about what stress is inherently, it's actually a good thing because stress serves as a warning sign. It is a mechanism to tell you that you are at threat. Something is potentially going to harm you if you continue to stay within this circumstance. If you're in this situation, there is the potential that something could inevitably harm you. So stress signals as a warning sign to help your body get ready to mobilize as much possible energy for you to either fight what's in front of you, to flee what's in front of you. Or the other thing that happens is some people just, they lock down, they freeze. So I like to say that stress is your best friend because it will save your life. Stress will also help you to perform better. In performance and sports psychology, we have a concept known as the Yerkes-Dodson law. Yerkes-Dodson are the individuals who created this model. And they indicated that there are certain levels of stress that impact performance for better or for worse. So we know that kind of in this inverse curve, inverse U, is that when people have a low level of stimulation, performance typically is pretty low. But as stimulation or stress is increased to a certain extent, then that actually helps us to perform better. But there is the other side of the curve. When stress gets a little bit too overwhelming, we see performance begin to drop off. So it's that inverted U and that Yerkes dotson law. So we can see very visibly how stress can be significantly positively impactful. What most people think about when they think about stress being bad, they think about the accumulation of stress. They think about as stress begins to compact and compound because we're not dealing with the stress very effectively. And that has to do with either a lack of self-awareness or really poor self-regulation skills. So Mm -hmm. I like to always conceptualize stress that way is to say that it's not the acute experience of stress. That is inevitable. That is a part of life that is there to save you. That is a warning sign that is inherently good. It is inherently helpful. And I know it sounds funny from a psychologist perspective, me saying stress is good, but it actually is is a good thing. It is the repeated experience of stress that we do not regulate. That is the problem. It is going to work repeatedly and experiencing the same events over and over again, and then allowing it to impact us to make the choice or decision that this is something that is causing us pain and causing us suffering. It is those repeated experiences day in, 
day out, week in, week out, month after month, decade after decade. It's the compounding that causes people to implode or explode because they have no way of regulating it or they're really unaware of kind of the impact that's having on them. And so that's what I think about when I think about the stress that is the bad stress versus the good stress. Or in, in psychological terms, we use the, the word distress for the bad stress and the eustress for the stress that we know can help increase performance. Isn't it the case that people think of stress as bad, but if we're not getting any, as you mentioned about the eustress or hermetic, hermetic stress, that's actually bad for us. If we're not stressing ourselves in some way, that leads to all kinds of conditions. Yeah. So one of the really interesting things that we've seen in the literature, so for using, let's say, heart rate variability as as an example, because we know that's a great proxy for somebody's stress response and how well they're adapting or maybe not adapting. One of the things that comes up over and over again is that we see people that have clinical depression. So someone who is diagnosed with major depressive disorder, their body will actually manifest in an extremely low heart rate and also extremely high heart rate variability. And Mm. if you just looked at their biometrics on paper, you would say, oh man, that's a high performer. Look at them, low heart rate. That's somebody who is got a really high HRV. That's good stuff. What we're Mm. actually seeing is a parasympathetic nervous system that is overly activated because this person has no drive or motivation to do anything. They're depressed. All they Mm. can do is sit around, lie in bed. There's no need to mobilize energy. You're not doing anything because you're depressed. So Mm. again, that's why I say that they're always, context is key. Like when we think about stress, stress, when we think about mental health, when we think about biometrics, context is key because on paper, they would look a certain way that if you posted their numbers on Instagram, they'd be like, look at that. That must be like the top health and wellness influencer, professional athlete, like the guru who's got it all down when actually this person's pretty significantly depressed. So I think again, like putting everything into context is really key and understanding what it means within that circumstance and context as well. It makes all the difference in the world. You mentioned before about some of the other devices like the Aura and the Whoop and and Apple Watch and, and so on. I've listened to your podcast and you've mentioned about using some of the other devices. When was it you first decided to do something different, like to have some kind of a device? We had the Whoop, we had the Aura and the others. Why did you think there was something else needed? Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. I think about how I conceptualize health and wellness and how like at Hanu, how we conceptualize health and wellness. I see it in uh, in pillars. And I know that this is very much an oversimplification of how we conceptualize health and wellness. But I think for understanding why we started Hanu and the gap that was there in the market, and then also just in general, what people were looking for, it didn't fill one of my rungs or one of my pillars. So when I think about it and how it compares to the wearables that are currently on the market or the other platforms that on the market. If you think about the pillars, I think about them in these four. We have good quality nutrition. We have good quality exercise. We have good quality sleep. And then we also are managing our mental health. And I think, again, you could probably create some other categories there, but I think that you could fit most health and wellness needs within those domains. So if you think about nutrition in the wearable space, now we have CGM. So continuous glucose monitors are like the newest wave of looking at the impact that nutrition has on health and wellness and on glycemic variability. So that's great. They're there. Then you have exercise. So many players in the game, right? Fitbit, Apple Watch, of course, Whoop, Aura is now getting into the exercise game. You've got so many great ones over there. So yeah, got it covered. 
The next one that we see here was sleep. Okay, Aura, like the, for me, they are like the number one. You got Whoop, you've got Apple Watch, you got other Garmin who's doing sleep staging. That's phenomenal as well. Mental health. Where is the mental health platform? And that's where we really wanted to jump in. We said, okay, Whoop and Aura, like they give you HRV, but that's really just one metric that's looking at recovery. And it's really not giving you guidance other than just like saying, hey, your nervous system's not recovered. So it doesn't really close the loop there. And then from a mental health standpoint, it's like sometimes they'll ask you kind of like how you're doing, but it's not very explicit. Where I was like, what if we created a device that number one is going to capture heart rate variability all the time? So we're going to see like what is happening on a very microscopic level to your nervous system at any given moment, because that can provide us with a lot of insight as to how certain events, certain circumstances, different situations, how are they affecting your nervous system response? And then also we can add in other variables that we are know that are very well correlated with people's stress, like how fast are they breathing? How fast is their heart rate? What's changing in regards to the fluctuations of heart rate? So where we really saw a gap, Tony, was in the wearable space, if you will, that is heart rate variability is able to be captured on all of these other devices, but it's only when you're in certain very um, distinct circumstances. For instance, most of these are only capturing it at night when you're asleep. Basically, for all intents and purposes, when you're a corpse, you're not moving and your body is as still as it possibly can be. And the reason being that the reason they're not capturing it throughout the day is because these light sensing technologies, which we call PPG or photoplasmography, they're very sensitive to movement, to artifact, to noise, to light. And the reason that's the case is because they're indirectly looking at heart rate. So the light is shining through the skin and what it's doing is it's picking up a pulse. So basically the way it works is that when it sees the blood pulse come through, so it's a shunt of blood coming through, the light refracts and you can tell that's a pulse. Now, the one thing it's really good at is approximating heart rate. So if you turn up the sampling rate of these devices, we can approximate heart rate pretty well. But if you remember, heart rate variability is looking at the distinct time between heartbeats. And we're talking about matters of milliseconds. So if we are off by any appreciable amount of milliseconds in terms of accuracy, then that data is junk. It goes out the window. So how do we solve for that issue? We go directly to the heart signal. We don't look indirectly. We look directly at it through an EKG. Mm -hmm. Now, previously, EKGs were extremely expensive. They were very cumbersome. There had to be leads all over you. But now we have technology to where you can take a strap like we use, uh, which is the Polar H10. You throw it on, you throw it off, and you have accurate data guaranteed under every single condition. It's great mm -hmm. that tech has advanced in that way. And at some point, we'll probably be able to get advanced HRV from the wrist. We're not there. Hanu, we worked on that. We put a lot of time and money and effort into doing that. That. And in the end, like we could get it close at times, but we couldn't get it under every condition. And for us, we were like, we want to be able to provide this under every condition for our users because we want them to have that high level of valuable feedback. But once again, Tony, I've gone into a long, elongated story here, but I thought maybe the context would be helpful for people. As you were talking, and I noticed that you were wearing the Whoop and the Aura. <laughs> Yes. And a Garmin. I got my uh, Garmin, got Garmin Phoenix as well. As well. Actually, what you were saying, because I, I had a whoop for about a year or so, and I noticed there was quite a difference in the reading whether I wore it on my wrist or if I wore it on my bicep. It 100%. made quite a difference in the reading. So uh, if you want an explanation, I can give that to you. The reason being 
is because of two things. When you have it on your wrist, it is a lot more prone to artifact. The biggest killer to wrist-based wearables is this right here or mm -hmm. on the phone. Because if you put your finger right there, you can feel all those bones moving through there. And right. what does the device sometimes pick up on? Oh, they think that's right. a heartbeat. That looks like a pulse. It's moving. It looks like it's passing through. You right. throw it on your bicep and you get a lot less of that artifact. So what we've actually done studies with, we've thrown these devices on the arm. And when you're at a resting condition, so let's say I'm all, even if I'm typing on a computer, but if I'm sitting here, unless I'm flailing my arms, I can get a, mm -hmm. a decent signal. It's not great. It's not like an EKG, but uh, yeah, it's, there's a significant difference between the wrist and the arm. And we see it almost like under every single condition. We say if like people are using a device like whoop or you can't do it or it's on the finger, so you can't do it. You're going to be best off if you want the most accurate reading for that device, throwing it on the bicep, especially if you're working out. But yeah, it's, it can be a little bit tricky. Aura is having its challenges right now because they released their newest software and their newest device, like the version three, where it's supposed to give you heart rate during all conditions, both when working out and at rest. And it's, again, I hope I don't get sued by Aura saying this. I'm just telling you the data that I see. It's insanely off. It's very inflated because of the amount of time that I'm typing or I'm using my phone or I'm talking with my hands, which I do frequently. It just, it goes out the window. Whereas the EKG, it can have artifact that occurs, but the ability to catch it and remove the artifact is so much easier because we're looking at direct signal. We can tell what is the direct signal of the heart and what is noise very mm. easily. So when you put it on, even if you're sprinting as fast as you can down the road, we're going to know. And you, you talked about when you were describing the gap in the market and why Hanu started, and you mentioned breathing. And I know that Patrick McKeown has got some sort of involvement in Hanu. So did you deliberately, did you want his, that kind of expertise? Did you reach out to him? How did that all come about? Yeah. Yeah. So Patrick and I have known each other for quite some time now. I helped out on one of his previous books, wrote uh, some information regarding heart rate variability. I probably have it some, yeah, it's sitting back up over on my left shoulder, the breathing cure. So there's like a whole chapter that he and I collaborated and worked on together. So Basically, when we started Hanu, we had done some podcasts together, Patrick and I, and because there's so much overlap between what I do and what he does. Basically, I just take a lot of his skills and practices and a lot of his training, and I incorporate it into utilizing or leveraging technology as a mechanism for feedback. That's why it's called biofeedback. So biofeedback is simply utilizing breathwork practices, so changing the biomechanics, cadence, and biochemistry of breathing, but being able to see in real time the changes in your physiology that are occurring as a result of you manipulating or changing your breathing patterns. So a lot of what I do is overlapped. I just add like the tech component onto there. I always say like biofeedback is essentially like a tech savvy way of doing breath work. It is what it is. But the great thing about it is that when people do biofeedback, they do the breathwork practice and they feel subjectively great as what most people do when they do a breathing practice, but they objectively see the data change. So they say, oh man, my heart rate variability started off at 15 and by the end of this session, it was at 30. So I had a 100% increase in heart rate variability, which is not uncommon for people who do biofeedback and breathwork practices. 
for us, it's really easy to come back and condition a response that way if we continuously see the objective feedback in real time. I drone on about that, but a little bit more about Patrick is that he is definitely involved in this. So we have, say for instance, his Bolt score built right into our app in our assessment section, which is a assessment of functional breathing. It's basically like more or less a CO2 tolerance test that we have built in. Patrick is also advising us on a lot of the other things that we are that are coming now to Hanu, which are going to be a lot more of oxygen advantage focused practices and guidance, which I think will be a phenomenal incorporation to our app. We've been working on that for quite some time as well. So yeah, Patrick is again, a close friend. We do the podcast together. So he co-hosts a Q&A podcast with me and uh, he is just a masterful individual at what he does. He's an extremely intelligent, kind hearted, giving individual. And I just love his heart for helping people with breathing difficulties. And because you talked about the differences between the different apps and where they're strong and so on. I know Whoop it gives you some sort of information about your respiratory, right? Mm-hmm. But this is really going to set Hannah apart, isn't it? About the whole yeah. kind of emphasis that you're going to have on the breathing side of things. Yeah, absolutely. So there's two components that are going to be extremely differential. Well, I would say that the big component is that Whoop's main category and individual that they're approaching is going to be the one in the health and wellness space that is more like engaged in exercise and recovery from exercise, whereas ours is much more stress and mental health focused. I would say that there's two components here that I could really highlight. One would be, yes, the effect of utilizing breath work as a self-regulation practice. That is absolutely Mm -hmm. a key component. It is built into the exercise regimen that we include. So that's key component number one. Key component number two is that we're about to release algorithms that are insanely accurate in being able to detect respiratory rate. So how fast you're breathing at any given moment under any given circumstance or condition. What we can then use that data for is inform people of how their breathing patterns, the rapidity or how fast they're breathing or how slow they're breathing. How does that affect metrics related to stress on another layer? Because we may see, oh my goodness, like I can tell why your HRV plummeted by 50% in the last 10 minutes. Like you went from breathing at a rate of 12 breaths per minute to 16 or 17. Look at the correlation here here. Being able to provide insight does a couple of things, Tony. Number one, it helps people to become more aware and think about it. They think, Mm -hmm. oh goodness, I need to conscientiously throughout my day, focus and place an emphasis on slowing my breathing down. Because if I don't, and my breath gets really high, I breathe shallow through the chest. Look at what happens to my stress response. Like it really takes a hit. Like it really is impacted. Making those connections are incredibly valuable. And the insight that we are looking to provide at Hanu is to be able to put all the pieces of the puzzle together, inform you of when your nervous system is really shocked and feeling really taxed, help you to then identify what were the things that were happening in that moment that may have caused it? What are the trends? Is this something reoccurring? Like, is it your commute at 5.30 in the afternoon every day that really gets to you and breaks your nervous system down? And then always pair it with some form of self-regulation. And this is behavioral psychology 101. Is the mm-hmm. idea that if you have an event that is causing you to be stressed or to be anxious, then pairing it with something that exacerbates the anxiety, rapid breathing, cognitive spiraling, those are things that are going to sustain that behavior. 
and it's going to get worse and it's going to get more frequent and more dense. The duration is going to be longer. But what if we come in and instead replace it with a competing behavior that we know is effective in optimizing health, like pacing mm. your breathing? Well, eventually over time, we become our own mechanism for biofeedback in the sense that we are more aware of it happening sooner, faster, and then we have a more effective strategy of reducing the deleterious impact that it has on the mind and on the body because we're going to jump straight in to doing a breathing practice. Whereas prior to this experience, we may have cognitively spiraled down. We may have breathed rapidly. We may have gone and ran in the kitchen and grabbed the Twinkies or the chips or the donuts or pastries, whatever it may be. So the idea is to figure out how can we replace the negative behavior with a behavior that we know is going to be much more adaptive. I noticed you've got various exercises on the app, mm -hmm. such as the pre-meal and post-meal and so on. And I imagine that many people who are maybe not so knowledgeable in this whole area are going to be thinking, why would I want to do a one-minute breathing exercise before I eat or after I eat or whatever? Yep. Yeah, it's a great question. We had on a Honey Health podcast, we had one of our advisors, his name's Dr. Stephen Cabral. He's a functional medicine practitioner here in the US, has a really great following, runs a clinic called the Integrative Health Practitioner Clinic. And when we had him on the podcast, we were talking about this concept of digestion and how people who are in a very stressed state have a lot of problems with digestion. So the one example that we always give is that if you think of what happens physiologically when we are in a stressed state, so when our parasympathetic nervous system is relinquished or the brake comes off the parasympathetic nervous system and the gas pedal is pressed on our sympathetic nervous system, which is our fight or flight response, we shut down digestion. There's no need to digest because we want to relocate and or allocate blood to other areas and other organs that make much more sense during that time. There's no reason for you right now to have any blood in your gut because you don't need to expend that energy digesting. You need it in your heart. You need it in your lungs. You need it in your brain. So that's the reason why it shuts down. What happens if you're eating, you're stressed, and you're not digesting? Do you think that's going to cause some gut-related issues? You mm. bet. It will absolutely do it. One of the big things that we see, and Stephen Cabral talked about this, is that when food is sitting in the gut because you're stressed and you're not digesting well, it ferments. That food ferments. And then we have this bad disarray of what we call dysbiosis or kind of this influx of bad bacteria that is outweighing all of the good bacteria in the gut. And this can cause things like IBS. It can cause other gastrointestinal dysregulation and problems. So what we do within our app is we say the best way to kickstart a meal, no matter what, is to do just a short one to two minute breathing session. We call this our pre-meal breath work that we have in the app. What this is going to allow you to do is take the time to prepare the body for digestion and to get ourselves out of this highly overactive sympathetic state that you might be in prior to a meal. Post meal, we do the same thing. What happens to a lot of people? We scarf down food in a stress state and then we go. We say, oh, I've got to get to the next thing. And if I, if I don't, like I'm going to whatever, get in trouble. So what we tell people is that, okay, now after the meal, we also want you to down regulate the nervous system 
Because what happens is when you eat, you're going to have to mobilize energy. So you're going to see an increase in heart rate. You're going to see a decrease in heart rate variability because you're chewing, you're digesting, you're mobilizing a lot of energy. But what we don't want to have is this crazy pendulum swing to where your sympathetic nervous system is in way hyperdrive and your parasympathetic nervous system is not. So what we have to make sure is that if we feel the sympathetic nervous system starting to creep up, like more or less outweigh our relaxation response, we do a one other breathwork session to really help to re balance that, keep the body in a relaxed state so that we can progress and move forward throughout the day without having to worry about these problems that can arise with digestive related issues if we're constantly in this sympathetically or stress-driven state. And there's some so many exercises on the app uh, for resonance breathing and so on. Mm-hmm. So how similar or different are they to say what heart math is doing? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one that's provided a a lot. In the world of biofeedback, I won't say that there's necessarily camps, but there are, there's language or vernacular that is used for certain practices that have a lot of overlap. Mm. A lot of them is because from a research perspective, from a marketing perspective, like it's just easy to coin your own terms. Mm. We utilize the term resonance frequency breathing or resonance breathing. Now, this term has been unfortunately a little bit bastardized and because a lot of companies have tried to incorporate it or say that they're using it when in fact they're not. If you actually look at what resonance frequency breathing is, it was first coined by Dr. Paul Lair, who sits on our board of advisors at Hanu. So he has been actively involved in everything we do in regards to the trainings and assessment. He and his colleagues out of Rutgers back, this has been... Th- about 40 or so years ago, they found, oh, about 30 years actually, they found that human adults breathe optimally when we practice biofeedback or breath work, not naturally people breathe anywhere from about 12 to 14, sometimes as high as 16 breaths per minute. But when we're practicing biofeedback, if we want to optimize heart rate variability and want to decrease or increase, I should say, our parasympathetic response most effectively, we actually all have a breathing rate that falls between four and a half breaths per minute and six and a half breaths per minute. And we refer to that as a resonant frequency rate. The reason it's called resonance frequency is because it is the frequency or pace of breathing that resonates with your nervous system most optimally by raising heart rate variability, increasing respiratory sinus arrhythmia that we talked about earlier, increasing the power of what we call low frequency band in the frequency domains of heart rate variability. That is what a resonant frequency is. So you can do this assessment on our app where you can find what is your resonant frequency rate. So mm-hmm. you can actually go through the steps and you'll breathe at a rate of six and a half down to six, down to five and a half, five and four and a half. And at the end, you get a report card on what of those breathing rates affects heart rate variability the most. And then we lock that in as your resonant frequency rate. And you breathe at that rate when you do the resonance practice. Now, the question that you had posed is, well, what is it? And that's what it is. And then how is it similar to coherence breathing, which is the term that was coined by heart math. So heart math refers to coherence as when heart rate and breath rate are in sync with one another. They're coherent with one another. They follow a linear pattern with one another. We actually assess that when we do the resonant frequency assessment. We look at your level of kind of coherence, the overlap, because you want your heart to follow your breath. We know that as the heart follows the breath, then that is going to optimize the most, HRV the most, and it's also going to influence a lot of other physiological symptoms like blood pressure management and regulation, stimulation of the vagus nerve, and so on. 
And so coherence breathing is looking primarily at that. And when they say coherence, a lot of the times heart math will tell you to breathe through your heart, almost like visualize that you're inhaling and the air is going through the heart as maybe opposed to the lungs. And that helps you basically to center breathing with your heart to help balance out that coherent heart rate rhythm. So really that's what it is that happens when people engage in resonance frequency breathing. We just don't call it coherence. It's just something that's termed a little bit differently, but as you can see there's a little bit of an overlap it's not a competing idea honestly it's a it's more of the same if anything is your in the instructions i mean because i've received my hanu app last last week and so i've been wearing the strap for the last week and so and i noticed that you mentioned that for example not to wear it during sleep and so are you is your do you think that the average user is going to be wearing it most of the week or just when they're doing certain things or what is the idea in mind for that yeah, it has a lot of utility under so many different types of conditions. I think if people want to get the most benefit, they should wear it throughout their working day. I sometimes will just take off on the weekends just because you can get, it can be a little bit of a data overload if you do it every single day, all day. Again, it's, that's a personal preference. Sometimes I would say 50% of the time I take it off and don't utilize it on the weekends and utilize it during my most stressful periods, which is my working day. Mm -hmm. So I'll strap mine on. I'm like an ultra power user because this is my field. This is my device. So you can only expect that I'm going to use it probably more so than the average individual. I'm not necessarily recommending you do what I do, but I put mine on at six or so in the morning and then take mine off around six or seven at night. So 12, 13, sometimes 14 hours a day, I'm monitoring it under basically all conditions. Now, I think that if people just want to do it from like nine to five, like during their working hours, that can be quite effective as well. I think consistency is key because what we're really looking at is where's your baseline range and then how do your numbers differ from your baseline range? How much time are you spending below it that day? How much time are you spending above it? And then how much time are you spending within your range? And one thing that we haven't mentioned yet, Tony, but that I think it's really important is that a lot of people have this myth that higher HRV is better. It's not necessarily untrue, but what is more true is that normal HRV is better. It's very similar to glucose in the sense that the more we're able to maintain HRV within our baseline range throughout the day, that indicates that we're adapting well. If we're above our baseline, then we're really relaxed. Like we're adapting super well. And when we mm. dip below our baseline range, oh, like we're having a hard time adapting. Like our nervous system is having a hard time keeping up with the amount of taxation from the stressors that's being put on it right now. So again, mm. I think to answer your question, wearing it throughout the working day is really good. I find a ton of value in testing certain things with it. So mm. for instance, the effects of sauna, the effects of cold plunge, the effects of different meditative practices, different technology that people are making claims about, hey, this affects the nervous system this way. I like to test it out. Different breathwork practices, obviously. I do a lot of biofeedback with it. My other one that I love, this is probably how I use it um, maybe second most, is during workouts. I do on our app what's called a snapshot, and I click the workout button. And I actually will watch heart rate throughout my entire workout. But the biggest thing that I do, especially if I'm lifting weights, is that a lot of people when they're lifting weights, they'll do a set of lifts. And then what do they do? They just get on their phone and they play around, look at social media, whatever it may be, do some work, do emails. I like to be very proactive during my rest sets. So what I'll do is I'll actually work on actively regulating my breathing during rest sets so that I can raise HRV lower heart rate. Because we know that if you're doing a 
work out, if you're not actively working out, you should be recovering. So in order to increase the intensity of the next set and to recover in between sets, I incorporate breath work in between those and will utilize that snapshot app to watch my HRV go up, to watch my heart rate go down in between a set to basically reset the nervous system to prepare for going in for another intensive work bout. So there's so many different ways to use it. And so I would say for people who are like, I'd rather not wear a chest strap for eight to 12 hours like Jay's doing, I would say just start off small. Just do a couple hours and do it during your working day. Really just start to identify, man, when is the times or what are the events that are really causing my nervous system to experience a pounding? And when I experience a pounding, like how long is that lasting? Is it really quick and I'm back and, and recovered, which is to be expected? Or man, these things are really impacting me and I stay down for a while. Like I'm not recovering back to my baseline for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. That's a really important thing to look at. And on a similar theme, and I've heard you talk about this. I think I heard you talk about this on your podcast, the possible dangers of people being too led by data from devices. It's, it is a, a, one of the main, a, one of the biggest pitfalls in the field of behavioral psychology. We refer, or in social psychology as well, we refer to it as the process of a self fulfilling prophecy. People mm -hmm. will wake up, they'll immediately first thing they do is they'll look at their aura score, a whoop score, or they'll throw their honey on, or they'll do whatever type of you know um, biometric interpretation for that day. They'll see their score, and then immediately, like life is going to be lived according to that score. So mm -hmm. it's like. Like without checking in subjectively first, you just take the data for what it is and say, okay, without context, it is what it is. I'm going to take it as the end all be all. So my, and there's a lot of problems to that because you may be either misinterpreting the data or you're trusting biometrics a little bit more than what you're trusting your subjective feel. So I have a general rule of thumb is that I, number one is that I don't look at my phone for the first hour in the morning because I have a set of things that I am doing for my health and well-being and my morning routine is probably the most paramount to starting my day off in the way that I wanted to. Mm -hmm. So I don't look at my phone for the first hour. When I almost immediately get up and I go take a shower is the first thing that I do and normally a cold shower and I go in and during that period of time, I will just think. And when I say think, I'm doing a mental check-in how do I feel? Am I feeling a little bit more sluggish today than normal? Do I feel like I'm in a good headspace right now? How's my mood? I do a check-in. And what it's become, and I find this very fascinating, is that I've worn these devices for so many years and have seen the data so many times, is that I can get out when I first check my phone, I can tell you within a range where my heart rate variability is going to be. Mm -hmm. I can tell you within a range how well I slept or did not sleep, but I use it as a level of check-in and as a guide. And I say, okay, I want to pair my subjective experience with my objective data. Because mm -hmm. if my aura tells me that I didn't sleep very well, or my whoop says I didn't recover very well, I could say, oh, that's my excuse that I don't need to go to the gym today. I don't need mm -hmm. to do you know X, Y, Z today. Maybe, or maybe not. If I wake up and I feel absolutely awful and I feel like, oh man, going and putting forth a lot of that effort may actually suppress my immune system even further. It may not be good for me. Then I make the decision to, yeah, it's going to be a very light day. I'll go for some small walks. Like I'll do some yoga and some stretching, some maybe plyometric type work, but like going out and doing an intense workout, maybe not so. 
Or I'd say I'm going to place a lot more emphasis on breath work and biofeedback and meditation today. Like those can be really good things. But the last thing we want to do is just take the data for what the data says it is and provides Mm. you and say, okay, I'm going to live out and fulfill this prophecy that my day is going to be a very crappy day because I didn't sleep well. I don't need to work out. I have now permission to go eat donuts and pastries and drink soda. (laughs) It's like all of these things that I've seen and heard before can easily happen if we put way too much weight into the data. And so I guess for many people, it's going to be hard to know what to believe because I can think of it as an example during the COVID pandemic. I can't remember the guy's first name, the golfer, Matt McElroy. And the whoop strap helped let him know that he had a COVID bout coming on because I think he, if I remember rightly, two days before he officially got a test saying he had COVID, he could see from his HRV scores that there was something not right. Yes. Yep. And that can happen. Yeah. Because you can see it well in advance. So what we tell people is that it's a really interesting metric because we know from studies that it can begin to show signs of ailment to the nervous system or a taxation on the nervous system prior to symptom presentation. And the reason being is because your immune system, your T cells, your white blood cells, they're actively working on inhibiting this invader that is within the body well in advance from the those symptoms manifesting. And so the nervous system, when it sees the immune system kicking into high gear, it says, oh, time to fire up. We need blood pumping. Like we need heart rate up. We need all of this ability to mobilize energy. We've got an invader. It's time to do some work. And so when it does that, you see that manifest in HRV going down, heart rate goes up. And for me, I've seen it with my Hanu. Like there's been days where I'm like, ooh, HRV is down a lot lower than it normally is. Heart rate's up a lot higher than it is. I feel fine, but normally this is not a good sign. And then the next day I'll be like, "Uh oh, yeah, I don't feel good. Like you know, kids brought home something from their school or whatever it may be. And it's starting to manifest. And again, I try not to put too much emphasis into that because I don't want to say, oh, I'm not feeling good. So therefore I should just say, yeah, I'm going to be sick. So therefore I'll let everything else health wise go out the window. As actually the exact opposite. I should be saying, okay, what can I do now to prepare the mind and the body for what is potentially to come? That's the approach I take. Now, I see a lot of people, unfortunately, taking the other approach, but I think it's more advantageous to really work on saying, I'm going to now ensure that my mind and body are prepared and ready to go for what appears to be coming in my direction. You talked about the sauna just now and about how you can get some useful data when you're doing a sauna. And so when I go to my local gym, I'm always having a sauna session afterwards. Does the phone have to be quite close to your actual strap? Right now it does. That's going to be changing here soon. The device actually has memory built into it. And so we have the ability to capture certain periods of time without you being near your phone. And then when you get near it, it'll just sync right up. So right now it's about 40 to 50 feet away. That's a Bluetooth range. So for me, like when I go into my sauna, I don't like to carry my phone in the sauna just because I don't want it to overheat and bust or whatever. iPhones are too expensive nowadays. So I, (laughs) they've always been expensive. But I'll I'll put them in my locker in the gym that I'm at or at home. If I'm in the sauna, I'll put it outside. But I love wearing it in there. And if you can get the data stream, it's fascinating because you'll just see that nice little upward trend of heart rate. You'll see the nice little downward trend of heart rate variability. But the really cool thing is about 30 to 45 minutes after a sauna, you see this really amazing upswing. The body has experienced the stressor. It's now in recovery mode and it finds its way into 
more of a parasympathetically driven mode where people's HRV is inflated, heart rate is down. It's a really cool process. As long as you haven't overdone it. Now, if you go and overdo like a workout, then a sauna. So if you do, let's say some high intensity training, and then you do a sauna that's really hot for long, you might see it suppressed for a little while longer, but we know that level of suppression or that level of training, as long as you're not overdoing it, is actually really great for the body. There's about a thousand more questions I'd love to ask, but we're running out of time. So I think just before we finish, there's a couple of questions I always ask. One, is there a book that has really moved you for any reason? Yeah, the book that has really moved me, there's a lot that come to mind. So I tend to be a little bit of a avid, ferocious reader. I just, I love reading. But the book that is probably... There's two that compete, but I'm going to say one of them. And it's the book Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, you know, emperor of Rome, uh, one of the greatest emperors that Rome's ever seen, basically wrote a journal of all his thoughts and all of his ideas. It's the core of Stoicism now, or one of the core pieces of literature in Stoicism, Stoic philosophy. But he didn't mean to write it for anybody. He meant to write it for himself. It was just like if someone were to capture your journal and start like saying, hey, I'm going to sell copies of this, he would have never anticipated that. But I think that's the beauty behind it is because he just lays it all out there. But it's just a great way. It's just a lot of great stoic life lessons and Mm -hmm. learning from someone who was at the pinnacle of what he did during a very difficult time, experiencing and seeing a lot of very awful things and just learning how to live life better and live Mm -hmm. with virtue. And so, yeah, that's my absolute favorite one. If people want to find out more about you and about Hanu, where would they go? Yeah, hanuhealth.com, H-A-N-U health.com. Tony, we can even talk after this. I'd love to give you a code so that you can give it to your listeners, but hanuhealth.com and you can, I will send you the device. So you get access to the platform for 12 months and you'll be good to go in training resiliency. Because is it still in the testing stage or is it the actual full release now? So it is a, we released in what's called test flight, which is basically a beta testing type platform levels. The CGM company did this for the first probably three years of existence. We don't plan on doing it that long. We plan on getting into the app store, but what this helps us to do is really have a lot more advanced level of analytics and diagnostics so that we can ensure that we're building the right thing for the right people, but we won't be doing that forever. It'll eventually be in the app store, but it's available to anybody. And just remind me, what does Hanu mean? I know, my, my, remember it was Hawaiian, but I can't remember yeah, what it's doing. It, you got it. It's Hawaiian for breath, I which it, I think yeah. it's very, very fitting for us. And to finish, Jay, is there a, a quote that resonates with you? Yeah. So the quote that I'm going to give actually comes from Meditations, and it is a quote from Marcus Aurelius. So I'm a bit of a Stoic fanboy, a bit of a uh, Marcus Aurelius fanboy. But the quote is based off of the saying, memento mori, which means remember that you're mortal, you will die, <laughs> which kind of sounds morbid to stop uh, or to end the podcast. But this is the quote that I really love. And it is, you could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do, what you say, and what you think. And I think that is a amazing conceptualization of how we should live life, that it's very short. I could end at any given moment. And because of that, we really need to do what we can to love ourselves, to love others, to be in community, to live life to its fullest. And that's a quote that's really misunderstood by many people, isn't it? It is 100%. Yes. Jay, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for giving us such amazing information. And I think people have a better understanding of what HRV is now and how the devices like the Hanu could really help them. So thank you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Next week, episode 93 with Holly Middleton, who is a movement coach specializing in restoring global movement patterns 
by fine-tuning movements of the skeleton. So we talk about gait analysis, foot function assessments, joint by joint movement screenings, and a lot more. And so that's next week's episode with Holly Middleton. If you know anyone who really enjoy and get some value from this week's episode with Dr. Jay Wiles, please share the episode with them and hope you have a great week. Thanks for tuning into the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. You can also sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at TonyWinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.